Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 130th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's so good at this stuff that one of us may have lost their Bitcoin not once, but twice. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product, shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out face-to-face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at mtgcritic on Twitter. My co-host tonight, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at wizardbumpin. And we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Uh, Welcome back, James, from the frosty, I guess, lands of Eastern Europe. boiling, boiling. Oh, (laughs) It was intensely hot and steamy um, southern lands of Bulgaria, just north of Greece. Um, and yes, thank you. I am uh, thrilled to be back. Um, not the least reason of which is that it's much easier to reclaim your stolen identity when on home soil. Yes, I've heard you were uh, quite the undertaking there, right? So basically what happened was as I was on the tarmac leaving for our two-week trip to Europe, Um, My phone stopped working. I was in the middle of trying to post uh, a fresh uh, uh, sale to my eBay account and my phone disconnected from the network. And I thought, well, we're only a couple of minutes from takeoff. So, you know, no big deal. It's probably just a normal thing. Um, But by the time I landed in Germany for our midpoint, most I couldn't get into any of my accounts. So I couldn't get into my online banking, couldn't get into my... uh, uh, PayPal account, couldn't get into my Gmail or my my eBay, and started to freak out because we only had 20 minutes before the next flight, so I knew whatever was going down, was I was not going to have a chance to do anything about. So we land in Bulgaria, and I make a beeline to the nearest corporate-focused hotel, get some safe Wi-Fi, and boot up my laptop and start checking the situation out. And basically what seems to have happened is either there was malware on my laptop, which led to access to my Google files, or depending on, you know, what kind of research you believe. Uh, There is information on one of my older email accounts that was available on the dark web. um, And the passwords to some of my other accounts were similar enough to that account that maybe somebody made the jump and got lucky. Um, Either way, they found a massive password file that had not all of my passwords, but a lot of relevant passwords, both for my personal and professional life, um, which led to no shortage of confusion, anger, surprise, and fear that lasted the better part of 10 days. That is quite the the event. I can only imagine... Like checking your phone on the airplane being like, huh, that's odd. And like trying not to think about it on the flight and then like getting to Germany and like realizing what's going on and that sinking feeling about the ramifications and then just having to sit there and wonder about it the whole time you're on the plane. And then I'm like, we get to Bulgaria and my phone still doesn't work. Right. And I call into Bell and I'm I'm trying to talk them through, hey, like I've been through an identity theft. Can you guys think of anything? They're like, no, well, it looks fine on our end. Like you probably just have maybe a faulty uh, phone or whatever. You can check it out when you get home. But no, it turns out that they had accessed my online uh, phone services account and had changed the SIM card. So they had full control over my cell phone number so that if I had any two-factor authentication that was set up to send SMSs, they were going to get it. Mm. 
So the first few things I tried to reset, they got access, they got like deeper access to. And to this day, most of my uh, MSN related accounts based off a Hotmail address um, that they had access to are still in their possession. So I'm going to spend, none of those are super important, but they don't, they give me a queasy feeling knowing that somebody else can easily impersonate me. So I'm still going to have to run them down with customer service teams all week long. The, (laughs) they also may have gotten into my crypto accounts, hence the, uh, the message at the start of this podcast, um, that (laughs) in about four years ago, I guess, uh, my first, uh, stock of Bitcoin got stolen at Mt. Gox. Um, and this is my second crop of Bitcoin and some other related cryptocurrencies from last fall, part of which part of which is the stuff that I traded my Black Lotus for um, that was sitting safely in various wallets that may not have been safe after all, depending on how deep the infiltration was. So I've rebuilt my laptop from scratch. And later tonight, I, ha- I get the joyful experience of trying to rebuild my Bitcoin wallet and discovering whether, in fact, I've been ripped off to the tune of six or seven thousand US. That's sorry to laugh. That's just so shitty. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. That's um, uh, I do not wish that on anyone. Identity theft sounds like one of just like the. It's like identity theft feels like the digital version of bed bugs. Is you can never feel like you're rid of it, even after you think you've dealt with it. And like, fortunately, I'm not in a position where I need to go like apply for a mortgage or anything right now because like my credit situation is very simplistic and and well manicured but i'm gonna have to put a freeze on all of that through equifax and etc because um when people have like they basically have in, in information related to my personal taxes for 10 years right like they have everything to steal that they can would need to steal identity and try to set up fresh credit cards and stuff they got into my paypal account and spent six thousand before paypal shut them down um so yeah, it's uh, it's been a real mess. Um, not fun. Really hard to have like try to focus on a bunch of Bulgarian people trying to speak to me um, in broken English and offer me various food substances and and ask me about um, my daughter when all of that was going on in the back of my head. And the really funny thing in Bulgaria is that they have excellent internet. Like even in this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere, I had like super high quality Wi Fi, so I was able to switch over to my wife's. Uh, uh, Apple devices and and begin the retaking of the grand facade. Hmm. Interesting. I would not have guessed. The, is the internet uh, socialized out there or nationalized? No. Um. They just have like uh, countries that started that stuff late tend to have better internet. Um. Countries that had major telecom infrastructure, um, tend to be still subsidizing a lot of their projects over the years with the new stuff. That's why like data is like 10 bucks a gig and 10 or 20 bucks a gig in North America. Whereas in Europe, like everybody we were talking to was like, what are you talking about? We have like unlimited data for $45 a month. You pay for your gigs in Canada. Yep. Oh, wow. It's pretty, pr- pretty unusual to have an unlimited plan up here that doesn't, that isn't like $150 a month. Hmm. It's got an, on cell phones, uh, they moved away from limited a while ago, but home internet is still mostly unlimited. But I guess we pay like 80 or 90 bucks a month. Yeah. So, yeah, t- tough week. Um, finally comfortable that my laptop is resecured. So here we go with podcast action. <sighs> um, I, if, I can, if I can share one piece of advice with everybody <laughs> on personal security, um, we've, we've touched on, well, maybe three pieces of advice. Well, you're going to spoil our segment of the week, James. Now we're going to talk about the Pro Tour. I'll just briefly touch on this. So first thing is make sure your stuff at home is insured because 
I value my anonymity above all else. And we live in a in a tower 44 stories off the ground for a reason. And now people have enough information to be potentially case in the joint. So make sure that everything's insured. Make sure your home security is in order. If you've got a house, you might want to consider having one of those fancy little systems that puts cameras everywhere. Um, passwords don't have any two passwords the same, even old ones, even crappy ones. Shut accounts down, anything that's important. Make sure you have randomly generated passwords and consider either using a high-end password manager um, that encrypts all your passwords or do what I'm doing now, which is I'm going old school. I have all of my passwords in a physical book. Um, and that will probably be the case for some time. Um, and make sure that you've got two-factor authentication set up on everything that might be important, bank accounts, PayPal, email, um, you know, Google services, uh, eBay, all that stuff, TCG player, et cetera, wherever it's available. Um, and specifically, if they support two-factor authentication via encrypted software like Google Authenticator, use that instead of the SMS because if somebody take, manages to clone your phone or replace your SIM card, SMS isn't going to help you. Mm. I think, yeah, that's a good advice. I think I have a couple, I have a little bit of two factor going on, but probably not as much as I should. It's, um, <clears throat> there's really no good way. I don't think to store passwords. It just doesn't exist. Um, cause you can try and memorize them, but you'll forget if you, especially once you get into like the hundreds, you can have a digital solution, but that's ultimately stealable. And even a physical solution, you can lose the book. Um, and since you're supposed to do randomized passwords for every website, there's no way you, you can remember all of those. Even if you came up with an algorithm for yourself that like you could create a unique password based on the URL in your head, you'd still wouldn't be able to remember them all. So there's just, there's just no good way to do it. Yeah. And the trap I found it felt fell into here was that I had sensitive information in the cloud. Like it's just so tempting to use the cloud because it means that when you're out and about with your phone, you can access all the same stuff you can from your computer at home. Everything's just really convenient. It's really nice to use Google services and have your contact book like stored like universally, have all of your passwords follow you around and everything. But the, the downside to unifying everything under one roof like that is that they, if they get a hold of your Google account, they have your documents, your spreadsheets, your tax information. They can have password information. They can have browsing history. They can have whatever. So it's a good to split some of that stuff up. Um, Google Chrome is probably not the best browser to be using these days. Um, might be better to be looking at something like Firefox, Quantum, Opera, some of the other <clears throat> slightly lesser known things that have been making a bit of a comeback or are just good choices if you're trying to uh, compartmentalize your private information. Um, also, keep in mind that Google and Amazon and Facebook and all the rest are all about rapidly devouring your data. So make sure that when you're installing your Windows 10 um, or equivalent that you are turning off all of the data sharing settings that you're going through based on the new legislation, especially if you're in Europe, um, and denying them access to as much as you feel like you want to. Um, all of that stuff will help you in the end when you know the unimaginable happens. Yeah, I do not. Uh, I do not envy you the amount of work that requires. That is a, a real bummer. It, it it was a solid week's worth of labor to rebuild all this stuff, investigate, talk to customer service teams, get things reversed, rebuild passwords, set up authentications. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Did you lose the six grand that they spent out of PayPal? No, you get that. That's covered. Mm. Um, and they didn't get into most of my bank accounts because I think that the way the like the, the like transfer from automated hack attack to account management um, probably 
goes is that they have like a list of the top couple hundred websites on the web. And they, if they have information that they think is your passwords that might work, they can brute force that a bit by trying variations on them. And whatever, if they get a significant number of hits, then that will, you know, notify somebody, a real person who will then take control of the account and go after you. Um, so like the first, they, they were sending threats, right? Like, so the first threat was give us $1,400 um, or we'll ruin your life. That one, other friends of mine got in the same week that are in the industry. And then beyond that, the the threat started to get more personal. Like they would mention a file they had found on my laptop. Like we have such and such a like uh, finance file. Would your clients want you to know about that? Send us money, it will ruin your life. <laughs> so pretty nerve wracking because the the only way to handle that is to never respond. So you just have to basically dare them to try something. And you don't really know how much of your stuff they got, whether they got like a naked picture of your ex-girlfriend from eight years ago or whatever. Um, James, so why you would you have that? <laughs> you, you just kind of have to bite your knuckle and, and hope that things go well for you. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> my personal uh, technique for... Um, internet security, personal security, uh, the galaxy brain, uh, galaxy brain, personal security is don't have anything worth stealing. <laughs> so uh, be poor. <laughs> don't bother with special taxes and, you know, don't have anything interesting. There's nothing left to take from you. Uh, <clears throat> I, I will tell you the, the number one thing I tell, I've been telling my wife for years is uh, no, no sexting, like no naked photos at all. <laughs> you, you, you had to re, you've had to reinforce that multiple times because well, she just won't give it up. No, no. I mean, it didn't. It never really like was a thing. But <laughs> I remember, like you know, years and years and years ago, like when revenge porn websites were were popping up yep. and stuff like that. And I was and I would see that, and I would turn to her and I'd be like, "Look, this isn't what we do. But if you ever get the itch, don't just don't because once that photo is taken, that's it." And it's oh, that's only more true today than it used to be. So now there's this, um, you know, sexting culture that's extremely common, especially with young people. Yep. And it's like I don't have any problem with with uh, people wanting to to explore that space. Like, you know, I'm all for healthy sexuality. It's just a bummer because the stuff is permanent, and it is only more permanent now than it used to be. And you know, you can go see the first lady of the United States naked. Those photos are out there and it is yep. only going to be more and more prevalent to the point where it will be like, I'm running for office. Here's my tax return and here are my nudes. Like, I'm just going to give them to you because someone's going to try and dig them up. So here you go. Um, so that's yeah, the my... thing here was that like, because, I, because I'm my own boss, um, I had a lot less to worry about. Like it's, it's a lot harder to compromise me. There's not there's not much you could do, especially given what I had on my laptop, which wasn't all that exciting. But it's still like most of my risk here is like I could be sued by a client because if they got into somebody like a major e-commerce project or something and caused havoc, then we're legally liable because it's my fuck up. Um, so that will play over, out over some period of time. But yeah, like you said, if you've got like dick pics on your laptop and they send them to your boss, <laughs> you're not going to have a good time. Uh, no. Yeah. It just, it's just easy to get caught by that. Um, which is a bummer, but, and even Snapchat, which was supposed to be like the tool for that is essentially compromised. So really, honestly, the best way to do that is Polaroids <laughs> as funny as it yeah. sounds like physical media only. Um, I mean, you can burn just, it. 
I'm just at the point, you just trust no one. You live in a box. You have them bring the water. It'll be fine. Yeah. So we can move on. Let's get into this massive list of movers and shakers. I was paying zero attention for the first week because I was like living in that deep pit uh, in, the, in at the bottom of my stomach where fear gathers. But once I basically got it dug out of that pit, second week I started paying attention. And boy, there's been this summer has not been as quiet as people like to think summers are for magic. Uh, no, this one has definitely been a little more exciting than past years, and I'm not exactly sure what the reason for that is. Um, but yeah, I'm used to summer being like, well, we got nothing to talk about, but not this summer. So starting off, we got Siege Gang Commander Foils from Scourge. This is the original printing moving from 15 to just over 30. Um, I think the assumption here is that you know people play this in Goblin decks casually and then on the fringes of standard legacy EDH, right? Yes, yeah. Casual decks. So, uh, uh, yeah, this is just further evidence that original foil printings, even in the face of a reprint, can often climb. When, when your first printing was like 10, 15 years ago, that foil may not respond the way you think it is when a reprint is announced. Yeah, the, um, the, the pack foil, original pack foils all seem to be, I think we're finding more and more bulletproof than we uh, may have initially thought. In fact, I looked at... Um, uh, Chalice of the Void and Mirrodin Foils. By the way, never buy a foil from Mirrodin if it's in any other set because Mirrodin Foils are the worst foils in Magic's history. Virtually um, undetectable. <clears throat> uh, are like 240 versus Masterpieces, like, which are like 180, 190. And it's amazing because like the Masterpieces are really cool looking, but the and the Mirrodin Foil, it's not even like the Mirrodin Foils are like, you know, just a regular card foil. They're awful. They're still more expensive. So old old foils seem to do pretty well. You know, I and I would say probably more true for something like Siege Gang Commander or anything with a different border. So old border original foils are much more resilient. You know, if you're talking about something that's in, uh, say, M15 um, and then shows up again in whatever set is next year, there's quite a gap there. But the difference between an M15 card and, you know, Return to Ravnica card are like virtually identical in terms of like borders and holograms and all that stuff. So the, you know, there might not be quite as good on those foils from like M15 and the original Ravnica, that type of stuff. But um, yeah, they're, they're pretty good. They're pretty good shape, better than we would have thought. So next on the list, we've got Omnath Locus of Rage foils from Battle for Zendikar, moving from $10 to just over 20. This is a double up on the back of the Lands Matters decks that are going to get built in the Commander Sphere this fall, um, based on the Jund Lands deck that is being released yeah um omnath has been surprisingly popular in commander um he shows up on the edh rack most played commander list like per month over and over again um i never would have realized it but he's there and now you get to play him in another deck uh so way more popular i went looking for foils a little while ago to try and spec on them and found that i had already been priced out so uh yeah i think that 20 dollar price tag on foils is very real Next, we have Thada Adele Acquisitor from World Wake. The foil's moving from $11 to about $25. This was one of Cliff's picks last week, if I'm not mistaken, and I assume people are, are thinking that it is going to be relevant in one of the artifact decks from uh, that, that people will be building, maybe the Sahili deck. Yeah, and I think just in general, the release of the Commander decks have turned, to pe turned people's attention back towards 
um, maybe some commander staples and popular cards in the format that hadn't moved recently. Thought Adele's only got one printing in World Wake. She's very popular. She steals salt rings and things of that nature. So um, <clears throat> just, you know, the artifact commander deck got people looking around again. They went, oh yeah, I thought Adele supply is really low. I should just grab these while I can. And now they're gone. All right, what's next on the list? After that is uh, Argothian Enchantress out of Eternal Masters, non-foil 650 up to about 15. This is not too surprising. This is on the back of the Bant Commander deck. Uh, nothing really else going on there. I think the other one, the original copy, probably moved in price too. I only have the EMA one here. Um, but across the board, those are up. I'd be happy to get rid of them. Uh, they're not reserve list. They just printed an EMA, which means they are reprintable. Um, so I don't think you're going to see this plummet or skyrocket from here either way, but, uh, you know, it's on the back of a spike. I would sell them if I had them. I just picked up a bunch at $7 or so yesterday. Um, I think 13 copies across EMA and then I picked up a couple of foils somewhere just south of 30. Um, I'm assuming that within two or three weeks of the release of this product is when you're going to be wanting to look to sell these because, um, yes, we've been through the initial hype cycle and everything, but then attention was diverted towards the, the biggest pro tour of all time. And there's all sorts of summertime activities going on. So give it a little and maybe like early mid September when everybody turns their attention back to fall magic, you can you can get a better sense of what you're going to be able to claim on these. I'm, I'm looking to exit closer to 20 than 15, and I'm certainly not in a rush because it just got printed, retinted, reprinted in Eternal Masters and didn't show up in this this uh, Enchantment Matters-themed EDH deck. I think that means that the card is probably safe for a couple of years. My concern, I mean, you're right, it's probably safe. Um, but they, like... Most cards, they don't reprint right away, but occasionally they'll run it back, especially especially if if you, if you there was a sudden reason for them to print it and then they didn't, you might see it pop up again. So I don't think it's likely to come to show up anytime soon, but it's more possible than other cards maybe. But in any case, um, I just don't know if the, if the continued demand is going to be there. Like there's a, a spike because a Bant Commander deck comes out and I don't know if... If the price is going to keep going up from here. It seems like it could drift down a little bit as attention wanes because it's not that good of a deck, basically. It's be a, yeah, it's going to be a mid-tier deck. So yeah, you're definitely right that you want to ride the hype spike and the hold is... Your backup plan is to hold for longer, but you want to get out of this in the next six weeks or so. Yeah, I mean, if it gets down to like 11, maybe you just hold on to it again. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not going to sell from 8 to 11. Um, yeah. But if I can sell from 7 to 17 or 18 or something, then... In, out them a, a copy at a time on eBay, then I can bear that trauma. Sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, after that is Mimic Vat Foils from Scars of Mirrodin, 9 to 22. This is a card I called two weeks ago when I was on the cast with Cliff. So not too much of a surprise here. Uh, let's see. Did any of them sell at that price? Let me check the TCG player storefront. Last sold foil was... Um, still only $8, so it doesn't look like, or 9 bucks, so it doesn't look like it's moved yet uh, on TCG Player. Nobody sold a new one at the new price, but the current cheapest copy is $25. So I, I think that nut will crack. I think if you bought them at 8 or 9 you are 100% getting paid off over 20 One of those cases where I don't want to be super deep on it, but I'm happy to have a couple copies. I picked up an extra one on your say-so yesterday, um, and I'll probably post it at 20 to 25 and see if it moves on eBay this week. Okay. How about what's after that? Uh, we've got Chromatic Sphere 
uh, foils from Invasion going from $19 to $47. That's 140% plus gain. Is Chromatic Sphere in KCI in Modern? Yes. Right. So that's where that's coming from. Um, one of the oldest versions of the card, if not the original version, the original version. Yeah, from Invasion, yes. And their old border, right? Yep. Right. So that that explains all of that. It, that's one of those cases where if you had a playset and it's you know in real nice shape, you're going to need want to hunt down a KCI player and try to convince them to to go in on it if they've been foiling out that deck. Um, given that KCI seems to be on everybody's top of the list for to get hit by a banning sometime soon in modern. Might want to do that sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree. Um, completely. Uh, following that, Stitcher Supplier foils from twenty uh, uh, Corset twenty nineteen Magic twenty nineteen um, six and change seven bucks up to eighteen for a brand new uncommon. This was the sort of the breakout card in the black red Vengevine deck at the Pro Tour, which was arguably the breakout deck. Turns out that the black one drop that mills three on the way in and out was what the deck was missing. There is no way a current set, the current set, uncommon foil is going to be an $18 card. It just got drained because people were after them. Um, I see these settling back down in like the 4 to $6 range because there's not that many people that are going to want them. And also people are going to be like, I'm not paying that for a brand new foil, brand new uncommon foil. Um, Magic 2019 is still getting drafted and will be the current draft set up until uh, the Ravnica release in like October. So absolutely sell these as fast as you possibly can. If we were talking about a fall set that was going to get heavily drafted for a while, I'd be on board. But I think this holds not 20, but I think it can hold 10 to 15. The foil uncommons are not all that common. They're also not the kind of card that's going to jump out at Joe Random that opens a box as something he's supposed to pull out and take into buy list. So a lot of these are just going to disappear into the ether. Um, I ran that survey, I don't know if you saw it, uh, while I was abroad, um, asking people what percentage of their collection they felt they had played with competitively outside of the, like, say, limited play, like not including the draft where you get a card that you draft, but where had you played constructed with your collection? What percentage of your collection was actually in use and how much of it was just rotting in your house? And overwhelmingly, 80% plus of people said it was less than 25%. And really, if I broke that down further and and twitter survey supported that i bet you we would have had 70 percent plus uh, at 10 percent or less and the point i was trying to make is that it's not mgg finance that drives prices up for magic it's people hoarding cards they don't need or play with um, and i think that these kind of like cards that are good in one deck in one format uncommon and foil so many of those copies just breeze on on past any opportunity to get off the 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 card highway and back into the hands of dealers and because it's a summer set and you know people are going to move their hype on over to the commander deck shortly and then you know this big ravnica release in the fall i think these foils can hold for a while i also don't think you see this card again for a while so you know unless it shows up as some kind of promo or something um, I think these can hold 10. I picked up two at five locally yesterday. I feel pretty confidently that I can hold those for a couple of months. I, my caveat, however, is that um, it being an uncommon foil of recent vintage is not the only problem. The other problem is, does this deck last in modern? Um, from what I saw on camera this weekend, it can be pretty vicious. I mean, that whole thing of uh, dropping some stuff in the graveyard 
putting some zero casting costs, hanger back walkers and and walking ballistas in play, and then bumping the Venge Vines back into play is pretty nasty. But Modern is a broad and fickle beast, and you don't really know where we're going to be a couple months from now. I mean, people were claiming it was the doom of humans on various podcasts I was listening to, and it was the most played deck of the Pro Tour. So, um, Stitcher Supplier is not something you want to be very deep on, but if you have a few copies, I bet you're going to get out on them. Um, yeah, I... Okay, I'm not 100% on board, but that's okay. Take it as you will. Uh, following that is Wizards Lightning from Dominaria. Foils are just under $4, up towards 10 Modern Wizards uh, had a, a moment in the sun, I think at like 5 or maybe it showed up in the top of a Star City. I don't remember. I know Cliff and I talked about it last week. Um, is this is the light? It's another lightning bolt. If you control a wizard, this was also the card behind the uh, the Amon Cat Wizard that you could cycle to counter triggered abilities. Whose name I don't remember. Same deck. Um, so people bought out the foils of that one from Dominaria. Uh, a touch older than Stitcher Supplier. Um, uh, these are probably a little more resilient than Stitcher Supplier in terms of the holding a foil price of ten dollars, just because. People aren't drafting Dominaria as much anymore, so there's not going to be too much added to the market, and it's a less severe price spike. It looks like Hooglin top-aided SCG Modern Open in Indianapolis on July 28th with Modern Wizards. That's what it was, okay. Um, And Wizards Lightning, you may recall, was a card that I brought up. I prophesized this deck in our discussion with Todd Stevens um, and was poo-pooed. So I'm now two for two with him on stuff that's going to show up in modern that he says won't. Well, I'm sure going out of your way to tell him that will definitely encourage him to come back. I, I'm sure he'll see it as lucky since I also mentioned the wizard's counter spell, which I don't see in this list. Right. Also, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it's also not clear this deck is actually good. Yeah. Um, I, there seems to be some debate. I have my doubts about deck pilot all parties involved here but uh yeah so <laughs> after Wait, that what, Asaka... what what is entrancing melody in the sideboard gain control of target creature with converted mana cost x x and two blue this is that's from uh Ixalan. yeah it's the new threads of disloyalty mm-hmm. basically um because you can steal let's you can steal like walking ballistas and endless ones i guess stealing um, death shadows is pretty sexy at three Right. You, so Threads of Disloyalty was three. So at th- so for one convert, converted mana cost, one creatures, it, it breaks even. And for X creatures, it's cheaper. So you still Death Shadows, you still Walking Ballistas, uh, Hangerback Walkers, Endless Ones, and a couple other cards. And then you can steal the one drops too. And then it's more expensive for Threads of Disloyalty if you're going on bigger than that. But I don't know how much you do that, I guess. It's also kind of dangerous to steal Death Shadows if your life total is not in the right position. Yeah, it's probably just a three mana destroy target Death Shadow. Yeah. Um, All right, so moving along. Sakashima Student. I'm going to cover a bunch of these at once because they're all based on Ninja EDH. Sakashima Student, Higuri the Steel Wind, Walker of Secret Ways, Okiba Gang Shinobi, Mistblade Shinobi. All of these cards are because people think that they're going to play the new uh, Ninja Commander. Um, that's coming out. That's the Grixis deck. Uh, yes. Or, yes, it is. We're gonna say yes. Or is it the Esper deck? I can't. No, Esper was top of library. So this is. Um, oh no, it was the Esper deck. Yeah. Yeah. Because there wasn't a Grixis one, right? It was Jund Esper, 
bands and is it i thought right there was no grixis correct yep correct so the the card that we're talking about that people are excited to play is yuriko the tiger shadow um legendary creature human ninja one blue black uh one and three commander ninjutsu return an unblocked attacker you control to your hand for a blue and a black, put this card onto the battlefield from your hand or the command zone, tapped and attacking. Whenever a ninja you control deals combat damage to a player, reveal the top card of your library and put that card into your hand. Each opponent loses life equal to that card's converted mana cost. That's a fun little commander. Um, people are talking about how there's not enough ninjas to support it, but that didn't stop people from going after the foils of all of the ones that existed anyway. Yeah, I actually think... Um that the ninja deck is going to be possibly the most popular deck to come out of this. Uh, it's a really cool, it's a, it's a cool tribe that we haven't seen really any support for. So people are going to be kind of excited to check it out. We had the tribal commander decks last year that didn't really take off. But the thing is, is ninjas is a quote unquote cool tribe. Uh, the overlap between people that own a Naruto headband and play magic is way too close <laughs> to a circle for my comfort. Um, <laughs> also, the commander itself is just a cool effect. Like, you get the commander ninjutsu. It does cool things when you hit players. It gives you an incentive to play big cards. Like, it's a cool card that allows you to kind of play with the deck a little bit with how you build it. It's not, it doesn't need to be as linear as the other tribal decks because you don't have to be hitting, like you're, you aren't getting paid for having every single card in your deck be a ninja. I mean, let me rephrase that. You would, but it's not required. So um, I think it is, a, even without a huge amount of ninjas available, it's a cool deck. You can toss a couple of enchantments that change all your creatures to ninjas to kind of bridge that gap. Um, and I do think this will be the long run. And I got to tell you, James, people like this deck. I have sold probably i think my buy-in for the for the of the ninjas that i have sold so far my buy-in was probably like 30 or 40 dollars and the the retail the price that i sold those those 30 or 40 dollars worth of cards for is probably like 200 to 250 yeah Um, that's real solid so people people are buying the hell out of these cards i believe it ninjas are cool um, I like ninjas. The, the The thing about this commander is that because you can you can uh, cheat it out of the command zone for blue and a black over and over and over again, um, it's not clear to me that you actually need a deck full of ninjas. I think what you need is a deck full of creatures that are, people are scared to block. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and then it just yeah. works. I Yes, because- and that's kind of the direction I went with it was uh, some of the cards. I, I mean, I spec'd on the foil ninjas where I could find them, but I also picked up some other cards that just make all of your creatures a pain in the ass or impossible to block because that lets you get your commander and your other ninja cards through for free. Right. So yeah, I, I and, think... And, and, sorry, go ahead. And it's a cute little win condition, right? The opponents lo- Each opponent losing life equal to the cards converted mana cost. Yeah, that is a those those types of effects like that that perforos effect where it just hits everybody and there's nothing you can do about it. Those are legitimate. I lose a lot of EDH games to that type of thing where you're just like, oh, well, I have an awesome board set up, and in two turns I'm going to turn the corner and be unbeatable. But you're going to chip me for a bunch of damage a couple times between this then and now, and I'm going to be dead. Or I have a board full of creatures, but you have one guy who's unblockable that's going to hit me for seven because you're going to flip a six drop off the top of your library, and it's going to kill me, even though I have all these creatures with lifelink type of thing. So um, those are those are good effects. 
Uh, I will tell you my, the card that I spec'd on that hasn't taken off yet, but needs to be in every ninja deck that you build. And I'm saying this because I think it's really good for the deck and not just because I own a bunch of them now is uh, Keeper of the Keys, by the way. That is my my long term longer term spec on the ninjas deck. So there you go. I already own mine. Interesting. So moving on from the ninjas, Titania Protector of Argoth is more about the Jun DDH deck where lands matter. Um, it was a commander 2014 card, a creature, legendary. Um, and it gives you creature tokens, I think, when lands hit the battlefield or something, right? Uh, when they die. When a land dies, you get a 5-3. Gotcha. And there's a lot of land cycling in the Windgrace deck, so not a huge surprise to see this essentially mythic card move from $5 to $15. And I think that probably holds its position. I don't think you're going to see a reprint on that anytime soon. It could show up in a random master set at some point, but since we don't even have one announced yet, I wouldn't be worrying about that too much. Uh, yeah, I agree. This is pr- pretty solid for the time being. Then Words of Wind from Onslaught. Non-foils three and change up towards just under $10. This is the blue enchantment from Onslaught that when you cycle when you cycle cards, you can pay money. Or if you would draw, you can pay mana. And instead of drawing, you do something else. Um, and this is the blue one. The Enchantress types decks tend to draw tons of cards because of Enchantress, Enchantresses and those types of things. So being able to convert that into something a little more productive at times is going to be a boon for any Bant deck, Bant Enchantress deck. Um, and Onslaught's obviously old as dirt uh, relatively, and there's only one printing. So I'm sure foils of this were basically already gone anyways, but I'm sure they don't exist anymore. Yeah. Starfield of Nyx is the banned enchantment focused uh, deck uh, driving prices. Those moving from three or four dollars up to about twelve. Um, that's a mythic for Magic Origins, um, also a summer set, so could easily hold a price over ten dollars until it sees a reprint, which it will, but probably not for a while. Yep. Then we've got. Let's see. I'm going to grab two here: uh, Bridge from Below and Vengevine. Uh, Bridge from Below is from Future Sight, so every copy moved. Non-foils from like Future Sight are about just under $10 to like $30 to $35. Benjvines, the one printing from Rise of the Eldrazi, it's the only printing, 20 some odd dollars up towards $100. Good luck with that. Um, both cards basically bought out on the back of the Black Red Benjvine deck that we saw show up at the Pro Tour again. Uh, what the real prices are, I'm not sure. $35 was the price of Future Sight Bridge from Below right before Modern Masters came out. So like that price is feasible, but the thing is we have all the modern master supply and we don't know for sure about the black red Benjvine deck yet. So I would expect that to drop closer to 20, at least for the time being um, until we figure out if, if the deck is real or not. Vengevine is not going to be a hundred dollars, but I bet this is a 30 to $40 card for a little while. Um, as people try and put the deck together because supply is quite low. There was a WMCQ promo, but there were barely any of those to begin with. And this is the second time the card has spiked, actually. When the uh, Hollow One deck first came out a little while ago, Vengevine spiked from like 12 or 13 up to about 25 or 30. That's when I sold the couple copies I had at the time. And now I'm angry about it. Um, But it was the right (laughs) thing. But it was the right thing to do. So uh, this is a second spike, which means there's a lot less free copies in binders, right? Like they were kind of just drifting before. They all got vacuumed up back then. So the second spike, these hit much harder. So I would expect Vengevines in the the close to $40 range. 
multiple multiple listings have sold buy it now and auction on ebay over 200 between 200 and 240 for play sets of vengevine okay so um, over 50 then yeah oh i yeah i sold um let me just take a look i knew that and i forgot about it as i was talking uh, just that let's see. i pretty feel pretty confident that vengevine's gonna hold um like 60 plus um the last set i sold was 280 so that's 70 a piece. Um, my in on those was 20 this time last year, 50 bucks a copy. That's just feels like highway robbery. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's a rise of the Eldrazi mythic. So there's not much out there, but honestly, it's not played in legacy. It's not played in commander. Uh, it's not really in cubes very much. At least it's not like a staple cube card. So there's no demand for this card other than modern. It's like basically purely competitive which is not the, good mod, modern right now is very broad but the the defining characteristic of a deck that can compete is a that you know the deck well but b that your deck has presents the appropriate clock on turn three or four and that if you have the the opportunity to just win games outright on turns one through two on some small percentage of the time say five to fifteen percent of the time then that becomes attractive and, and worth testing. And there are people that have components of this deck lying around from other things that makes this not, you know, that makes it so that it does not surprise me that Vengevine as the like mythic without the reprint um, has pushed as high as it has. But I mean, this deck overall is going to make me a ton of money. Blood gas bridge from belows. I sold out of this weekend. I already sold out of Vengevine. I posted a bunch of foil walking ballistas and hangerback walkers, and we have masterpiece hangerback walkers to make money off of. Um, Gravecrawler could get there. Um, Stitcher supplier foils and insolent neonate foils. I have a few of those sitting around. Um, I think I have some Russian foil neonates. I mean, this this deck is activating cards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, combo-y decks are going to be the best for that in general, right? Like that's what we've trend because it tends to pull cards in that were untouched before that just happened to work in the combo. Um, and this one is not only a combo-y deck, it appears to be good. Um, it's not purely combo in the way that like Ad Nauseam is. Um, so it's it's got all yeah, the it's got all the components that are a recipe for success, at least in our terms of that word yeah i mean it's it's hyper aggro with combo elements the the kci deck is the is the counterpoint right where you have you know if you had kcis you could make money on those when that went off but a lot of the other stuff in that deck is just garbage yes (laughs) commons with multiple printings that are almost impossible to make money on i mean even foil scrap trawlers won't really have made you much money um if you've been holding ancient stirrings and mox opal of course are used in other decks um but that's also a deck that looks like it might be on deck to get get slapped around um anyway moving right along plenty of else still to go through here um or a thief and retether making a move or a thief going from four to 14 on the back of the band edh deck retether is the one that brings a bunch of enchantments back from the graveyard um four dollars to 18 on the foils for that that doesn't surprise me because that was a planar chaos foil um vengevine we already talked about militia bugler seems to be a card that is uh being hotly uh, debated amongst humans aficionados and modern and um, whether the card deserves a spot cedric phillips of scg fame claims it's no good in the deck um, other people were happy to table it all weekend at the pro tour um, i decided to not worry think about it too hard and just went ahead and bought some russian foils for 750 apiece that 
the uh, not the pack foils, the oh, promo, there was a promo foils. for it too. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's like a game okay. day promo. Now the next three you did these right. You talked about them earlier. The Walker, the Kiwi. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The course, the core set foils for Bugler went from four to twenty in theory. I think that that's an example of something that's probably going to come back into the ten to fifteen dollar range as well. Um, but I like the foreign promos because there can't be that many of those around, as per our earlier arguments. Right. On set right. Top. Right. Right. And like, yeah, you're just not going to see them show up again. Um, like you said, there were the foil ninjas that all moved. Uh, I will say that Mistblade Shinobi and Okiba Gang Shinobi were basically didn't, as far as I recall, basically didn't exist at the time of the announcement. But Walker's Secret Ways was pretty available. That's the one I uh, done well with. And that's, by the way, uh, yeah, 2288. That that was my that was my listing. The 2288 on our list here, that was my listing. <laughs> um <laughs> So, so here's a silly one: Blightsteel Colossus foil, oh, yeah, mirrored good. and besieged, original printing in in theory from eighty to eight hundred. Let's just throw that number out the window. Let's just say from eighty to basically sold out, and you're going to have to negotiate a price somewhere between sixty yeah, and one hundred dollars. That's what we'll give you. It is a number. Yeah, it's a number in that range. I, I mean, this is a card that sees play in EDH, I guess, but not seeing any modern play. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a com it's a it's a combo piece, like people tutor for it type of thing. Um, that's where you would see it. Uh, but it's a very popular casual card, I believe. So it's relatively popular in EDH. Um, if you give me, I'm going to cut the, the blank out here while I look this up. Yeah. Yeah. So six, almost 7,000 decks in EDH. We, let's just call that the driver. Cause I don't, I don't see casuals paying a hundred dollars for this foil. Well, not for the foil, no, but the, I'm saying the card itself is popular with casuals. Like, Blaisdell Colossus has a kind of a curious demand profile, I will say that. EDH is a major component of it, but there's a lot of different groups that want to get their hands on it. So who's going to pay? No one's going to pay $900 for the damn thing. But Apparently there's decks in Vintage that run it. Yep, yep. They play it, I think, in Oath. Uh, they can play it with Tinker <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. There's a couple different ways to kill people with it um after that moreland taunt foils from innistrad a dollar and change to like 18 uh i got i got nothing is this is is this in bant spirits it must be that's got to be what it is that's got to be what it is let me just say i haven't actually i don't remember looking at the bant spirit list but that seems to be yeah there's some debate as to whether bant spirits is worth playing in the face of being able to play the more disruptive humans deck but they did get some good pieces recently. Uh, Moreland Haunt. Yeah, it's a one of Advanced Spirits. Okay. Because this so is the one that lets you exile a creature from your graveyard and make a 1-1 one, one white spirit. Yes? Yeah. Yep. So if you've got the um, Supreme Phantom that gives all your spirits plus one, plus one, then that's a land that's making 2-2 two, two flyers. Yeah, it's fine. I don't. It's not amazing, but it's fine. Which could be three three flyers if you also happen to have a Drogskull captain out. It's kind of it's a it's a grindy card, right? It's a, it's a card that's in there to make sure that decks that are heavy in removal or that can wipe your board repeatedly, um, you have some way of of causing them trouble that they're they may not have a tool to respond to that utility. Yeah, my only concern is that if it's only playing one, that's not really it's not a lot. They they need they have there's blue white and bant versions of the deck, and they neither of them can really afford to have a lot of colorless lands because Moreland haunt doesn't produce any any colors and it ha- and it's also color hungry it requires a blue and a white to use 
Mm. Um, following that, Zorn Orb from the Vault Relics copies. Foils, of course, 6 to 75. Sure, whatever. Um, go, 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 Relic Rangers. That's like, that's. <laughs> I have a FTV Relics sitting on my shelf that I picked up in Europe for about $420 US recently. And between oh. the Chrome mocks and this, um, should be some pretty sweet value there. Sounds like it. Uh, this is. Yeah, I could send on the lands back to the lands EDH deck. I guess not really much more needs to be said from the Vault Relics. Cards are going to go up. Zernor, we haven't seen in a while. Uh, but though, I will, you know what I will say? Those from the Vault Relics printing suck. So it's the only foil Zernor printing. But if they put this in another set, I can see the Relics copies coming down just because they're not pleasant. They're not good foils. Um, so I would I think, think like everybody's double. Everybody's double. I, I, I fully agree that that's true. But once your doubles leaving everything, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't think they look good either. Like I think in a sleeve, even flat on the table, an EMA foil looks better than the relics foils. Like Fair. the color is weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's got a very thick, pasty gloss. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, if you're, if you were thinking about buying my relic set, by all means, it's amazing. Please do. <laughs> All right, and to finish off the week is crenellated wall from Arcadian Masks, non-foils, under a dollar to seven bucks. Arcades. Oh, yeah, what do you think? Arcades or Arcades? Arcades sounds cooler. Does it? Yeah, Arcades is like where we went in the 80s to give people quarters so they could rip us off playing video games for three minutes. Yeah, Um, which is awesome. I don't know what your problem is here. (laughs) I had fun. Um, Arcades sounds more Greek. I like it better. All right, whatever. It's got a... Strategic angle. All right, let's get the show on the road. Segment two cards to watch. First card of the week, James. Why don't you uh, give us something? So, because of my whole uh, cluster snafu uh, regarding personal security and, and uh, electronic devices, I was not able to pull together my usual coverage of the Pro Tour, which is a real shame because this Pro Tour was actually mo- more interesting by a long mile than most have been uh, in recent years. Um, the fact that they were playing three different formats, all of which were, are in a reasonably good place. Um, the fact that there was a lot of good teams uh, at the tables and the way they were handling the matches where it was easier to follow the drama of how they played out because they were pausing them so that things weren't finishing off camera um, and kind of like ruining the narrative um, made for a very uh, entertaining weekend. There was a lot of good play, uh, especially in the top four. Um, always a pleasure to watch Raptor go to work. Um, with his like precise um, version of high-level magic play. And lots of interesting things came out of this, one of which was that the Channel Fireball teams tabled a legacy version of Death Shadow. Um, in the absence of Deathrite Shaman, they seemed to ask themselves the question, what is the best one-drop we could be tabling? And they came up with a blue-black list that runs four Death Shadow, four Delver of Secrets, two Gurmag Angler, four Street Wraith, um, and then brilliantly running to reanimate so that they can do nasty things like um, reanimating street wraiths on turn one. <laughs> <laughs> they had snuff outs in the list um, because they, they want to keep picking up their lands and dealing themselves damage. So they're running three watery graves in the, in this legacy list. Um, and uh, snuff out is the, if you control a swamp, you can pay four life rather than pay snuff out its mana cost. So you get to destroy a target non-black creature for free. It's like a black 
force a will, if you will. Um, and the upside to that is that your death shadow gets bigger. Yep. Yeah, it was a, it was a clever card, but you didn't even get to the best part of it yet. Okay. The uh, throne of Geth in the great in the sideboard. Oh yes, everyone loved that. And I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't look close enough to see what the point of it was, but I kept seeing people it, talk about it on my timeline. In the encyclopedia under tech, this is the kind of thing I would have expected to come out of a Japanese list, which is insanely racist. But let's just be real: the Japanese have are the ones who have brought this kind of technology to the table over and over again through the years. As, as resident social justice warrior police, and I say that in like a good way. I would not call that racist, but carry on. <laughs> um, so Throne of Geth is a two mana <clears throat> artifact. It says tap, sack an artifact, proliferate, which is you choose any number of permanents or players with counters on them and then give them another counter of uh, a kind already there. So what you can do is this list has a whole bunch of one drops that it really wants to keep on the table, right? Um, and get into play. So if they have Chalice of the Void on one and it's messing with your Death Shadows and Delver of Secrets, you can drop Throne of Geth in out of the board, sack it to itself, and move their Chalice up to two, which then counters most of their shit if they're playing something like Death Taxes. Oh, so it's an anti... Two drop. Two drop. So, okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's, so it's an anti chalice. An, an, chalice of the Void that may revert, like basically turn the tables on the Chalice player and set them up to be in big trouble. Because it was that one of the deck, I think the deck that impressed me the most in the tournament wasn't actually this blue black Death Shadow build, although it did quite well, obviously, um, in the hands of some very skilled players. But Death and Taxes was really setting up shop as like, this is an important deck based on where Legacy's at right now. And they're running. Um, you know, four copies of Phyrexian Revoker in the main, four Stoneforge Mystic, and four Thalia Garden of Thraven. So if, if they happen to be running Chalice or any of the other decks that might be running Chalice, and most of the, de- the D&T list that finished in theory in first from Alan Wu was not even running Chalice, so it's not even a relevant comment. Um, but whoever might be running Chalice, the Throne of Geth does nasty things. And there was a bunch of other weird little interactions that people had just never picked up on before. Um, whole thing was super interesting. Also, it was cool um, in the top four, all of the work that um, the single copy of Palace Jailer was doing mm. uh, at a conspiracy. This is the 2-2 um, for four, which is, seems like a completely unplayable card in Legacy uh, in a format where people often only have two lands in play. But when it become, comes to the battlefield, you become the monarch, which means that at the end of the turn, you're going to draw an extra card. So it's a Howling Mine. And a 2-2. And you also get to exile something, a a creature of the opponent's, until the opponent becomes the monarch. Which can only happen if they play their own monarch card, which is unlikely, unless it's a Death and Taxes mirror. Or um, they attack you. So in a deck like this that has has a pretty good chance of, you know, being in a superior position in in creature combat, given that it's got Batter Skulls and Sword of Fire and Ice and an Umazaz Jite and so forth... Um, and all sorts of stuff they can do at instant speed with Heather Vile. Um, the Palace Jailer and the going back and forth of who got to draw the extra card ended up being a really major factor in some of those top four uh, matches, and it was pretty exciting to watch. Hmm. That is very cool. I, You know, it's funny, that card has been really popular in EDH for quite some time, and I remember looking for foils forever ago and not being able to find one and being annoyed as heck about it because I wanted one. Uh, and they didn't exist and they're going to be even less likely to exist now, I guess. So I think, I think, I think the hell, (laughs) I think I got burned on that one too. Looking for it too late. Uh, I think LSV was telling a story on Twitter or something that I didn't look into too too deeply, but somebody 
out that was running the reanimator deck um where they have Ch- chancellor of the annex this is the thing where if it's in your hand at the start of the game you can reveal the card each opponent casts his or first her first spell of the game you basically get to mana type them for free mm-hmm. and whenever an opponent casts a spell counter it unless that player pays one flying five six so somebody discards that on turn one and no the discarded or they they forced him to discard it. i can't remember what which it was but whatever the case was it ended up in the graveyard and lsv reanimated it on turn one and had a five six flyer that man, that taxed them on every spell uh so i would imagine that sounds like that was re- the like a reanimator no no it's not reanimator it was you know it was reanimator that played that deck so it was yes, a reanimator mirror match like they pitched it no 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 no, no, the Death Shadow was running two copies of, of Reanimate because they wanted to be able to um, bring things back to the graveyard, cost them, like, if they bring back a Street Wraith or a Gurmag Angler, their life total drops by five or six, mm. respectively. And then the Death Shadow gets big in a hurry. So with Chancellor, his death, he, he got to put the Death Shadow in on the subsequent turn because the Chancellor is a seven drop. Yeah. So they're, like, down to 13 right off the bat, right? Then plus a couple of fetches and a shock land or two, and you're already at like seven or eight life, which is exactly where they want to be on turn Right, two. that's pretty savage. You get their Chancellor and also your own huge Death Shadow, and it's turn two, and your opponent's getting taxed by the Chancellor. <laughs> yeah, Sounds like this nasty. was essentially uh, what happens when a bunch of good players take a look at a reasonable archetype. Or, well, yeah. I guess it wasn't really so anyway, before that, was it? That was a really long-winded way of us saying, foil Death Shadows at $15 have to be a buy. Um, now that this card, it can, it, there's a Jund and Grix's version, which are out of favor at the moment, but will probably cycle through again at some point in modern. And now a relatively hot blue black list in Legacy, which doesn't really move card prices, but in conjunction with modern demand could certainly um, make something happen. Uh, Death Shadow foils are still sitting there from M17 at $15. I don't think you see this in the next modern uh, themed master set or master set of any kind because you just got it in 2017. I don't think you'll get it again until 2020 or 2021. Um, so whether or not it is this that moves the needle or some future modern action, I th- I feel like Death Shadow foils, if you didn't get in at 10 when I told you to, 15 is probably your next best option. Yeah, I'm definitely on board with this when you, you messaged me about it. I was like, oh. Maybe uh, maybe I should look for these myself. I haven't picked any up, uh, but I, I, I'm right on right there with you. I think it is a good choice. And if it's not if it's not this, it will be something because one mana, you know, 12, 12, 13, 13s don't come around very often. Um, and, you know, we've seen Death Shadow sort of enough times now and sort of enough different ways and now in a couple formats to know that the card is definitely real. It's like it, it is a magic card that matters. And even if it doesn't matter today, it will matter at some point in the future. And that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're specking on this type of stuff is like, well, is this the first time out of the gate for the card or like has it shown its chops before? Um, and in this case, we've seen it before. So we know it's it's good. Yeah. Uh, okay, so can I talk about my card now? Is that time? What 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 is your pick? All right, not as exciting as foiled dust shadows here. <clears throat> um, my first card this week is Fire Shrieker, and that sound you hear is all of you clicking at your keyboards to look up what that card does. It is a equipment from Mirrodin Magic twenty fourteen and Conspiracy. It is an uncommon in each of them, and it is uh, it is three mana to play, two mana to equip. And equipped creature has double strike. So you can currently find these for about a dollar. Uh, for which uh, on, on conspiracies, the most 
the easiest to get your hands on. Um, but double strike in the Yuriko deck, which is the ninja, is going to be insane because it allows your ninjas to hit twice, which means you get double the impact on your uh, commander trigger, which is going to be real good. Um, and since all of your creatures are supposed to go unblocked, like even if you're not putting your ninjas, you're putting on your other stuff, which also gets a impact effects when they attack and don't get blocked. Um, it's weird that I'm talking about a card that's in three different sets, but honestly, supply is fairly low. It's in over 8,000 EDH decks already, and every year ago that gets built is going to want it. Uh, so I see $1 foils to be real solid. It's going to jump up to, you know, five, six, seven bucks. It's not a massive spike. That's still a price people will pay for this card, and you'll be able to make $5 a copy on them. Yep, I can buy all that. Uh, it makes sense the ninja deck. It's open-ended with all sorts of other synergies where hitting twice matters. Um, other decks already have been running it. There's thousands of uh, copies from those other decks, and then the ninjas may put it over the top. Um, relatively limited number of printings. All good in the hood. Cool beans. All right, what do you got next for us? All right, so we've already made people a bunch of money on Battle Bond foils when I we first had our argument about whether $20 on those foils was worthwhile. Um, we now know definitely it was, since they're all sitting in the $40 to $70 range. Um, and while I was overseas, one of the first things I did when my I got my head above water was buy about two or $300 worth of the non-foils in and around $5. Um, there's no way these these Battle Bond uh, dual lands for EDH are not going to end up being $10, $15, $20 lands before they get a reprinting. Um, it's going to be years before you see these again. The foils were awesome, but now the percentage return, I think, lies in the non-foils. And the supply is not super, super deep and drains every week. And I've been watching it steadily tick away. There's no reason to hold back. If you're a big EDH player, you build a lot of decks, you own a lot of decks, um, you're going to want at least a play set of these um, in most of the colors. The red-green one is debatable. The rest are all pretty good. Um, so, yeah, just go ahead. Get your play sets if you're playing with them. Speculation-wise, anything in the 5 to $6 range is awesome. But I would go as high as 7 or 8 because I think you're going to get out closer to 20 Okay. I, I can't say that they were necessarily on my radar, but I respect the reasoning. And after having been uh, sufficiently wrong about the last time we talked about this, uh, I think it makes sense. I, I'm on board. Still still the top reported cards on EDH rec um, being played out of that set. So um, no reason to believe that that trend is going to change. Highly unlikely that another land displaces them in this role in the next few years. Um, if we get another fresh set of duels at some point in the next, you know, 2019, 2020 kind of range, I suspect that they will be more modern focused or yeah, standard yeah. or just standard or just standard playable. Yeah, they uh, have shown a uh, lack of interest in making um, more in returning to good and lands in general, right? Like the fast lands, we still haven't had a reprint on. Um they're doing it less than we would have thought. So yeah, and there's exactly so choice. any anything from fast lands to shocks to fetches could show up in the next couple of years, and people would be like, okay, that's you know that's on time. Yeah. Uh, okay, my second pick for this week, uh, and you're going to notice the theme is Shizo Death's Storehouse. This is also for uh, the Yuriko decks. It is a uh, a land that makes your legendary creatures have fear. So that means your commander 
uh, gets in for free. So does the uncommon ninja whose name I can't remember that was in Dominaria um, gets in for free, has fear. So much harder to block. Uh, you're certainly going to want that after you've already gotten the first ninjutsu in, you're going to, you know, want to keep getting them in. It's a land. So it's a free entry, um, a free slot in the deck, essentially. <clears throat> Um, especially as a two color deck, you're going to have room for a lot of utility lands. This also makes black and it's good in other, other commander decks. Anyways, um, it's in over 6,000 EDH decks because it gives legendary creatures fear and making legendary creatures unblockable or close to unblockable is already annoying. Um, so it's going to be in every Eureka deck. There's already demand for it. Foils are currently $10, but they're quite difficult to find. Um, so if you where you can find them and they do exist, I'm not saying they don't. They're just there's not a lot of them. Uh, but they're if you can find them at that ten bucks, then they're 100. percent Oh, I'm sorry. I, I I'm looking at my note. I made a mistake in my notes. The non foils are ten. I like those. Good luck finding the foils. You will <laughs> yeah. you basically won't find a foil copy if you do buy it. If it's like under thirty dollars. The non-foils are about 10 bucks, and those are really good. Supply on those is quite low, too. Only in Champions of Kamigawa. It's a legendary land that gives fear. Uh, I would not expect to see that return anywhere, anytime. If it was going to be anywhere, it would have been in this commander set. So you got a ways to go before that shows up again. A couple hundred bucks on TCG Player cleans this card up. Yeah, and then you can probably get 25 or 30 bucks a copy for these, I would guess. 20 plus at least, I, I feel pretty confident. And given the fact yep. that it was already in 6K decks, like you said, it's got the same kind of backing as the Foil Fire Shakers. Yeah, and I just want to remind our listeners that, you know, these cards that I'm talking about this week are for an EDH deck, and we know that EDH spikes tend to be slower. Um, they don't happen as fast as other, as like the modern spikes will, because a lot of people that are going to buy these cards are going to wait until they have the Commander decks in their hands, play a game or two, and then think about improving them. So if you're looking to sell these and you know kind of wondering when you're going to see the price move it's not going to happen right away it's going to take you know a couple months the commander decks aren't even on the market yet so the return on these isn't going to be like instant it's going to take a little while to get there yeah it's a good point one of, one of the reasons that edh has made us so much money the last couple of years is that is that lag um and the fact that edh players tend to spot great cards up front fairly um easily but don't necessarily pick them up um, right away. You got mm-hmm. a lot going on. EDH players own a lot of decks. They got there's a lot of deck management, and you got to kind of get in the. If anybody who's ever built an EDH deck knows, like you can't think about all your decks at the same time. Like you just kind of have to get in the zone on one deck, sit down with all the cards in front of you or a list, and and work through it. So, you know, it's it's not a huge surprise that that lag exists, but it always opens up a gap for you to pick up specs early and and often. Yeah, and it's also the type of format where uh, you can completely overlook awesome cards because you forgot about them or didn't realize how good they would be in the strategy. Um, you know, that's where EDH Rec has done a lot of work. Uh, not only is it kind of standardized a lot of decks, but it's also showing people stuff that they never would have thought of in the first place. And sometimes you can kind of be browsing and somebody will point out like, oh, this is going to be really good in here. And you're like, oh, shoot, that is awesome. I'm going to sneak that in now. Uh, before the rest of the internet figures that out, because that absolutely takes time. Uh, for instance, I have not seen Keeper of the Keys in many Eureka lists yet, but I bet you in a year it is in every single one of them because people haven't, people kind of forgot that card is there and don't realize how good it will be and it's going to start showing up and then that will propagate, which gives you a gap in the amount of time it takes for that information to, to travel everywhere. Yeah. 
So my last pick of the week is Hangerback Walker Foils from or- Magic Origins. Um, they are still hanging out around $10, and this is with Walking Ballista having already hit 30 from a more recent set at the same rarity, um, even though the Origins was certainly less opened than um, than the set that Walking Ballista is from, uh, Ether Revolt. Um, here's the thing. Hangerback Walker is not played in as many decks as... Uh, Walking Ballista is, but um, we have seen it pop up again and again. Whenever you think that these double X colorless creatures are done, they probably aren't. There, there's so many ways to abuse them. The latest being this black red deck in modern where you can put them in for free and use that to trigger your Venge Vines. That these foils at 10 bucks are easily going to double up sometime in the next three to six months if this deck keeps appearing in tournaments. Um, the Masterpiece version of this card is available at 70 There are relatively few copies lying around. I think those will end up over 120 when all is said and done. Um, seems like a simple one to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, <clears throat> that card is also like Death Shadow showing its chops. It is a real card that people play and they're going to keep playing. It's going to keep being good. So there's no reason to think that that won't uh, continue moving on forward. And it's going to be a pain in the butt to bring back. Yeah. And the thing is that as with death shadow, this is always played as a four of when it's played. Yeah. Um, and, and apparently Hangerback Walker is already in 7,200 EDH decks. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good, uh, whatchamacallit. Brea card. Well, I was going to say monosync. Yes, like because a lot of decks can build a tremendous amount of mana, you know, even infinite, and you got to do something with it. So this is a card that can be useful prior to that, and then just like also kill people. Actually, the more I think about this, the more I like it because it's not just the decks that are already playing it. Brea, Atraxa, Azuri, these are big decks in EDH already. Um, it's also the fact that we're getting Thopter themed decks in Is It from the Commander decks. So Psy Master Thopterist is already out from M19, I believe. And then we're getting a bunch of other Thopter related things in the commander deck. So it's likely to be some further demand from that quarter as well. Um, that's the perfect storm. If you've got modern NEDH trying to hunt down a foil that's $10 today, virtually guarantee you by Christmas you're going to make money on this. Yeah, sounds like a plan to me. Um, All right. Our segment three is our so, Metagame Week in Review. We spent we spent most of your first pick talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked about some of the legacy decks. Let's just jump right in there and clean that up quick. So the other deck that jumped out at me that was doing better than I think it had been recently or was expected was Eldrazi Aggro um, in a fairly cl- classical build. They're the ones that were running four Chalice of the Void main. So they were the ones that the blue-black deck could mess with. Um this is the kind of classic configuration for Legacy with the Mimics, Endbringers, Endless Ones, Matter Reshaper, Reality Smasher, Simeon Spirit Guide, Thought Not Seer, Walking Ballista, um, leveraging the fact that um, with Eye of Ugin and um, Eldrazi Temple, you just have some of the most busted mana in, in Magic history. Um, and they get to run uh, Urborgs to make sure that if they want to cast something uh, black, they can deal with that. They have four Leyline of the vo- Void in the sideboard to deal with the Graveyard decks. They're running two Karn Cyan of Urza. Uh, fairly interesting in Lee out of the board. Um, Sorcerer Spyglass making it in from Ixalan block. Um, Legacy l- looking lean and mean. Um, it was a good choice, I think, to get rid of Deathrite Shaman. Um, format seems to be reshaping in forms that are both familiar and and interesting it, yeah it is um absolutely the the decks in general were are pretty cool especially if you look back 
a year at what modern looked like then. Uh, remember, I don't think humans has been even been around for a year, right? Like that deck didn't show up in modern, wasn't in modern a year ago today. So I think it's about a year, right? Am I crazy? I, I think that's about right. I think that's about right. Yeah, because I remember you and I talking about it like, well, we don't know for sure yet. You got to wait and see how it's going to do. Like, you don't want to buy into one of these without knowing. Um, but this is really, really taken off uh, and has cemented itself as basically the best deck in modern, which I thought was interesting. Um, you know, especially for like a tribal beatdown deck, which is so out of the norm for that format. I'm hoping that the combination of Canadian Threshold doing well. I think Jacob Wilson finished like ninth in, in with his Canadian Threshold deck. Although keep in mind that the placements are a little wonky for this Pro Tour because like they represent how the team did. This is not individual rankings. I'm sure Saffron or somebody is pulling that together um, over on Goldfish, and it'll be worth a read um, to figure out what decks actually did best. Um, that's going to be a good follow up. Um, heading out of the Pro Tour. But the fact that Delver Secrets is being played as a four of in the blue-black list with Death Shadow and in Canadian Threshold, maybe that helps sell some foils. Yeah, that'll, that could do it too. Um, and the rise, you know, the death and taxes as well, uh, certainly signaling with Death Rite's departure that that's going to be a big part of Legacy going forward. Um, so whatever that means so, uh, for you and your cards. <laughs> Antoine Ruel finish in 13 whatever that means um with the teferi project in legacy which was monastery mentors and snapcaster mages brainstorm counterspell flusterstorm force of will peak ponder preordain swords to plowshares term four terminus three think twice two jace the mind sculptor and a teferi hero of dominaria sounds fun it's like the the new blue white control for legacy hmm so they got, they ditched the counter. Did you say counterbalance? You went through those so quick. No counterbalance. Hmm. All right. Sure. If it's. They're just using, they're just using peak ponder and preordain to get the terminus where they want it. It doesn't seem unreasonable. I mean, that's a lot of tools. And eventually you end yeah. up just trying to top deck your way out of that anyways. So then on the modern side of things, we saw hollow one um, as one of the aggro graveyard decks. Um, in theory in first place. And then you have the Black Red Vengevine, Jacob Negro in seventh. Hollow One also in the hands of Justin Cohen in eighth. Um, and then a couple of humans decks, um, both the Brazilians and a couple of the other top teams were playing that. And then Gabriel Nassif and Luis Salvato type folks were running the blue-white control that was also running Teferi Hero of Dominaria. Um, and Jace the Mind Sculptor and that if he's unbanned and modern. So, you know, a fairly similar build um, with various numbers of copies of Terminus running Settle the Wreckage, Supreme Verdict. We saw a lot of good play when this deck was on camera. Um, smart players having to play around tricky situations. Settle the Wreckage is interesting. That's a card that I hadn't really seen much of in modern before, but kind of makes sense a little bit um, because most of the decks that you want to wrath against are probably attacking you as hard as they can every turn and getting to do that getting to settle the wreckage against them is uh, pretty savage. One of the tricky things about making money or saving money on this blue white list though, is that it's very toolboxy. So there's not a lot of four mm. of, um, and I think the cards that you therefore want to pay attention to are 
you know, keeping an eye on what the relative prices are of Jace the Mind Sculptor, search for Ascanta foils, especially the Mapster pieces, of course. And then Teferi Hero of Dominaria in Modern Legacy isn't always a three or a four of. Sometimes it's a one or a two of. So that's worth considering. But Teferi is good and EDH as well. So I think that where you can find lows or good deals on Teferi foils, I don't think you're going to be upset in the long term. No, that's probably pretty solid. I mean, he is pricey today, but uh, looking like he's going to be pretty solid both in modern and in standard too for a little while. I was looking at him the other day and his price was high enough to definitely matter. Um, I actually found uh, a card that I really liked in humans, uh, but that was in my article this morning. So you should go read the Watchtower article on MTG price to see what card I'm referring to. Um, All right. Other than that, I mean, not a lot of um, not a lot of real combo, right? Like we didn't see much ad nauseum or anything in that regard, did we? No, yeah, no, no. It's all kind of just missing. Not nothing in the top sixteen ish. Mm-hmm. The uh, there's a copy in the affinity list that made top sixteen modern. There was a copy of the Antiquities War. Kind of interesting. I saw that there was a couple of hardened scales affinity lists that made it to the Pro Tour that uh, I, I didn't follow up to see how well they did. Um, but I think they were doing all right on the first day. And then over in standard, things to, seem to play out pretty much as you would have imagined. There was a lot of black, red aggro. There was um, blue, white control. And then the big deck, the other big deck of the weekend was this Turbo Fog deck using Nexus of Fate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which was getting get, getting people upset um, uh, because it's the self-fulfilling prophecy that they all wanted to see play out. Um, you know, since Corbin started complaining about it, many others, many others have picked up the torch about how bad an idea it was to give away a mythic that was going to be needed in the format. Problem is, this narrative doesn't really hang together, right? Like I was arguing with people on Twitter all through the Pro Tour that this card is still under $40, which is not unreasonable for a mythic. Um, the fact that it's $40 in the face of only being played in one format in one deck doesn't really matter. Like, yes, it's propped up more by the by its, you know, limited supply. But we're also in a situation where a lot of people that got it for free got a single copy. They bought one box. They got one copy sitting in their binder. And anytime the price climbs, they will be aware of it because a lot of hype has been built around the card um, and it's being reported on that the price is moving. So those those copies are going to float back into LGSs as people are looking to buy cards for their commander decks or get into fall standard or whatever. Um, not everybody's going to pay play tur- Turbo Fog, so you're going to see copies cycle back in. Now, does that mean that this card cannot become a problem? No, 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 no. It definitely can become a problem. If the deck became super dominant, a lot of people were playing it, and the fact that it runs four of uh, the card in question could definitely lead to this spiking up into the $60 to $80 range. But keep in mind, we've seen Jace Friend's Prodigy hit 100 plus in a fall standard format where it was just a summer mythic and that format still unfurled normally right like there was five six different decks at the forefront of that format decks were very expensive that year because of fetch lands but you know lots of standards still got played uh you know i gotta tell you i am not really on your side on this one um the first time in a while where i think we agree pretty heartily i was of the opinion that it was a terrible idea when it was announced what they were doing with this. And I still think that, and I think that the worst of all worlds hasn't come true at all yet for um, Nexus of Fate. I think that that's still on the table um, and quite real realistic. The card 
has had whisperings on MTGO, but this is the first time a lot of players in the paper world have kind of become aware that it matters, I think. Because I don't think prior to this, it had really done a big job any 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 major paper events, so nobody really knew yet. Um, add in that supply can't increase, right? Like they cannot put more of these in paper into the market unless they like print them and send them the stores, which would be an extraordinary step that they've never taken. Um, so they're pretty much all out there. A lot of players, I think, kind of kind of already know. Um, are, are learning now. So a lot of them have been sold back. Uh, Jay's Vin's prodigy at hundred dollars is a mythic was bad. Like that wasn't, we can, I don't, I don't think we can look at that and be like, Oh, this was an okay scenario. We've seen it before. It's okay. Like that's not okay. That's terrible. That's why we move. They've been trying to move away from that type of thing. Cause players hated that. And back in the Jason mind sculptor days, he was also like 80 to 120. Um, and people loathed that as well. Uh, Cause that was a real problem and we shouldn't be there anymore. So I think that there's, we're also in the middle of a summer lull. Like I know that that sounds kind of crazy. We thought we had like 30 cards that moved in price this week and we had to trim 30 of them, but standard in general is not that exciting in the middle of summer. A lot of people aren't playing it, but if this deck is still really good or any version of the deck that plays for an excess of fate is still really good. Come October when there's a surge of players back in the standard, like if this is the de facto control deck, that's going to be a problem because you're going to have way more players at those FNM tables who need a lot more play sets and access of fate. Control decks always attract players. They're always a big deal. They always get camera time because pros like them. I see the making of another, you know, 80 to hundred dollar mythic here. And I, I, you can't crack boxes to find it. There are no, there's no way to add copies to the supply short of wizards doing something they have never done. Um, so I'm not saying any of this will necessarily come to pass, the deck could have been a flash in the pan. Turns out it's not that great and it's not a big deal anymore, but I think it's a problem with Nexus of Fate and I think it reveals the, I'm going to call it a problem with the promos. Uh, it, whether or not it's a problem depends on who you are. Like does Wizards in the, your local game store think it's a problem right now? Probably not. Uh, it drove a lot of box sales at your store that you probably weren't aware of, but like it was wildly successful in getting players into the LGS. But it could become a problem if people get real angry about another hundred dollar uh, blue mythic and standard. I agree with all your points. The, the the I think the key point I would pick out at the end there though is that there's more to how whether something was a good idea than whether some players in standard are angry that a deck they might want to play includes a card that would make the deck more expensive than mm-hmm. the average deck. I mean, that's a very specific scenario. And you have to counterbalance it against how many extra boxes of the set were sold, keeping stores healthy, on the back of, hey, a cool promo. Which 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 now has made those boxes de facto cheaper for those players. Because if you got one for free and bought a $100 box for your LGS, you got the box for 60 bucks, which is pretty awesome. And it's also like, if we get to the point where this deck is just... Like the card spikes ridiculous, like way over $100. It's up to 120, 140 heading into some major tournament in the late fall. And there's no copies available. They will respond. I guarantee you they will. They, they will, they, the, the, pro, the promise to players that you could only get it from the boxes is, is in my view, a soft promise. It's not reserve list um, caliber. And if they need to put more copies in the market, if they get to that point, they can do it. They've already done it on Magic Online because there wasn't enough of these dropping for treasure from treasure chests 
And they've shown a willingness to adjust the policy to make sure that that ecosystem was in a good place uh, because it was much more acute, much faster on Magic Online um, as the testing for the well, pro tour was heating up. way easier if, to make that change online than it is in paper. And I don't think it's that. I mean, think about what it's like if on the Ravnica boxes, which they've already got one of these planned for, I guarantee you. There was one released, um, by the they way. They end up just saying... No, there's a they announced spoiler. It? Oh, you meant the card. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. We know that there's yeah, one yeah. plan, didn't, don't we? Like, isn't that like guaranteed? I would assume that. So, but there's no, actually nothing really preventing them from firing up the presses, printing more Nexus of Fate and sending players both. Because the same kind of player that got the first box and got the Nexus of Fate is probably the same kind of player that's going to go back and buy the Ravnica box anyway. And if the way that you're punching that guy in the face is that, yeah, these copies are going to end up being worth like $25 or $30 instead of 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, but you get another one for free. I don't think, I I don't think they're going to complain. Like, I I don't think they can lose if that's the way they have to go with it. Um, But I think they've got a couple more months before they need to see how that plays out. um, I, I never said that it was not going to work out in their, I never said it wasn't successful. I think it was exactly successful in doing certain things. The question is, is whether it was worth it to wizards, I guess, like whether it will have been worth it. Like it sold a lot more boxes than it should have, or I'm sorry, let me phrase it. It sold a ton of boxes that weren't getting sold at local stores before. So it was wildly successful on that metric. It's a problem on other metrics. So some goals are being hit uh, and it's creating problems elsewhere. I am not the person to judge whether it's worth it. And neither, none of us are, right? Like that's Wizards of the Coast has to be the one to make that call because they have access to information we don't. But it's still, it's still like, sure, it's it looks bad from where we're standing. It's it's a very bad look for the game, especially after a very tumultuous couple years of standard with that has been hammered over and sure. over again. So at the sure. very least, it's a it's not good PR. Might be might be good for the game overall because it does so, so good for the local stores, but it's not great PR. Um, I, I think we can both agree, though, that moving forward, and I'm sure even the greatest detractors of the situation with Nexus of Fate would agree here, that the solution here isn't to get rid of these promos moving forward. It's just to make sure that maybe they're not standard focused or dial down the power level a little. Like the Fire Song and Sunspeaker um, is an EDH card of mediocre caliber that nobody seems really excited to play. Nexus of Fate is a high level standard card that will have EDH and maybe modern chops down the road. Somewhere in the middle there is the sweet spot, right? Oh, I think the sweet spot is very clear. It's print it as a buy a box promo in this set and put it in this put it put it in the set the next set. So Nexus of Fate would be printed in packs and like Ravnica. So you're just getting the card early yeah. and a special art version of it. Yeah. And you can even have it be legal for those three months, right? Like you can be like, okay, this is legal and standard for three months right now and there's it's limited copies but then it comes back you know you get more of them later i don't know if i love it that still opens up the problem with like only being able to play foil copies and then having proxies on camera which is a little messy um and does you know on a fall set the gap between october and february is pretty long if you've got a super relevant standard mythic but at the very least you know that there's an outlet valve very shortly ahead of time um or you can print them and say this is a future shifted version of the card that's not legal yet. It will be legal next set type of thing when it is printed at that point in time. Um, so you can play with it in like EDH 
uh, and maybe even make it legal and modern, but it's not legal and standard until it's printed in the standard set. I don't know. Yeah, that's a little weird with like telling people they can't play with the card they just got. But I'm just saying there are other ways to do something like this that reward the players and get the foot traffic into the store that also doesn't have essentially zero safety valve. There is no safety valve here. And they've talked for years you can see how they have slowly changed the way they've put safety valves in sets for problematic cards and tribes. They went from putting the safety valves in like a set or a year later. For instance, fairies was in Lorwyn and the answer card, which is like um, Great Sable Stag and Volcanic Fallout were a year later. So fairies got to run around uncontested for months because the answers didn't exist yet. Now they print the answers ahead of time. So the answers for cards show up before the problem is printed so that it's there and it's quiet and it exists. And then they print the problem. And if it becomes a problem or the powerful card, this, the release valve is already available to you. Um, so, but now they printed this promo with no release valve. There is no ripcord if it becomes too big of a problem for them, which is just, you know, it seems like, the, and you know, that really hits on another topic, which we don't have time to talk about, but the silver showcase is the exact same thing as they have all of these great lessons from magic. Like don't, every product you make <laughs> can't be for every player, like design a card for one market. And that's the only market it's for. And you can't please everyone with one card. You have all these lessons from magic that they are not applying to their business strategy. I, I whatever. All right. I really do have to wrap the episode up. <laughs> my, my final comment of the evening is that, uh, the, f- the daggers from LSV who had been talking after making the top eight of the beta draft in Vegas about how uh, he was torn between going to Gen Con and, and going to the Pro Tour. And then the Silver Showcase ends up opening almost nothing of relevance in their draft. And the, um, the Gen Con draft opened Mox Jet, Bayou, Trop, and a whole bunch of other goodies. Mm. Um, and, the, and the same guy that made top eight in Vegas made top eight at Gen Con. Really? Yes. Huh. Gross. Right, can I, and I just want to point out, <clears throat> we talked about Silver Showcase before, but I didn't realize this until it was happening. Apparently, the first draft took place at 5.30 Eastern. Like, everyone yeah, that lives yeah, on the yeah. East Coast is getting out of work and driving home. Everyone on the West Coast is smack dab in the middle of their work day. And everyone <laughs> in Europe is going to bed. Optimal viewing time was somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Like, I, every I, I, aspect of this event <laughs> was handled as poorly as you could have. Weird. All right. I, I, I was sitting at a goat barn at like 11 p.m. in a Bulgarian village trying not to wake my baby up. It was, yeah, I, not awful. I couldn't imagine a more uh, appropriate place to be in Bulgaria. Goat barn is like, <laughs> if I had, if someone said, describe the settings that James is in, in Bulgaria, I would have been like, uh, probably a barn with some goats. Like that sounds like something in Bulgaria. All right. Yeah, next time I'll next time I'll tell you guys about the bride the bride market. Okay, you can tell me about the bride market. I'll tell you about my ridiculous Alibaba purchases. All right. Oh yeah, yeah, I want to hear about that. That's a wrap for the week. Where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me as per usual on Twitter at MDG Critic. Although there is some chance that a hacker might take it over, you'll know because their specs will be bad. As well as via my weekly articles on MGGPrice.com, which I'll be getting back to shortly. All right, and I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin B U M P I N. Every Monday, I do a Watchtower article on MGGPrice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right, that brings us to the end of uh, episode 
1.30. I have enjoyed our time together, James, uh, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.